Welcome to How I Did It, where Coda's philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. Welcome to this episode of How I Did It. This is David Knowles, and my guest today is Paul Heath, the founding CEO of Coda. Paul is also a highly experienced charitable and nonprofit investment committee member. He has years of experience performing that function, and he's overseen significant portfolios and endowment funds over the last years. Paul therefore speaks a lot in this episode about how to invest successfully, uh, particularly in the long term and particularly for the nonprofit and charitable investor. He speaks at length about how to set up a successful investment committee and how individual committee members can be successful in making their own contributions. And he also spends a little bit of time talking about how he set up CODA and a little bit about the CODA culture. Um, And one thing to bear in mind about this episode is it was recorded on the 28th of February, and you can put that in the context of where we were with the COVID-19 pandemic when you think about that date. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Welcome, Paul. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, David. I need to confess to you, given the amazing lineup of people that you have had on this podcast, that I'm a mixture of both flattered and terrified about what we're about to go through. Well, but, uh, I'm, I'm pleased that I'm here today. Why don't we get straight into the first question? Um, you've asked me to work with you twice now. What is it that you find so irresistible? <laughs> Your good looks. <laughs> uh, David, um, I, I can answer that question honestly. You don't have to, by the way. That... Well, I'm going to answer that question honestly. I think it's a really good question. So much it of, may be edited out, I, I will tell you that. So much of philanthropy and social capital is about feeling good rather than getting things done. And the thing, David, that I've admired about you throughout your career generally and specifically when we've worked together is you've never lost sight of the value and purpose in what we're doing, but you get stuff done. And you make, um, you make stuff happen in a commercial context, and I think that's a unique skill. And of course, that's why we're so delighted that you're working with us. All right, well, that felt like a total setup, but it wasn't, was it? <laughs> um, so let's get back to you, which is the uh, topic of the conversation. So tell us a bit about your background so people understand. We obviously know you're CEO and founded CEO of Coda, but um, yeah. go back in time and talk about your career. Sure, so yeah, I'll do that. Um, I mean, the relevance for, for all of this probably started when I joined JB Weir in the mid-90s. Prior to that, I had had a career that spanned you know, accounting and um, derivatives trading. It was a commodities trading. It was me trying to find my way, but in the mid-90s, I joined JB Weir as a financial advisor. JB Weir in those days was a stockbroking firm. And um, you know, I built a, a, a modest business as, a, as, an, as an advisor in the Perth office. I'm from Perth originally. However, uh, I was given an amazing opportunity to shift into a leadership role in 2000 without any prior experience. Um, I was asked to run the Sydney private client division of JB Weir, which I, which I did. And then sort of a series of um, Promotions from that point on had me um, then ultimately running the private client division. And, uh, and that business ultimately got sold um, into National Australia Bank and with the brand, JB Weir. So I, I, I became the CEO of JB Weir. It's unique because it's the same title, but of course a very different job than the, the legendary CEOs of JB Weir mm. over the time. What's been fortunate for me through that 
David, is that you know, JB Weir was a privately owned firm, phenomenal reputation, great culture. Uh, there was a period of time when Goldman Sachs owned 49% of that business. Again, very different firm, very different culture. National Australia Bank was a parent, very different firm, very different culture. And so when the time came that I realised there was an opportunity to set up a different sort of wealth advisory business in the marketplace, I could bring all of those experiences about models and cultures and things that I had seen that worked really well for clients and things I'd seen that didn't work well for clients. And so Coda today um, is an amalgam of all of those experiences. And I would also say not just my experiences, it's the small group of people who really founded the organisation, um, Andrew Rutherford, Quentin Reeves, Steve Tucky, you know, they've shaped this firm as well. And then the people who came along early on the journey, and of course you know you were one of those. Um, you know, we were talking in the very, very early stages of this organisation. But CODA really represents, um, if you will, a lifetime of experience wrapped up into what we think is the right model for a wealth advice firm for the next 30 years, rather than the 30 years um, that I've been in and around financial markets so far. Hmm. And um, when I was at Merrill Lynch, there was a famous story around a beer coaster on which was written uh, a little plan for something that went on to create um, a lot of success for the firm and for their clients over many years, uh, an innovative kind of model, if you like. And we've got our own version of that, haven't we? We've got a little piece of paper that you drew for me when um, we first spoke about Coda, and it was just an idea, and it was you know, lots of lines and boxes and, and question marks and stuff like that. But it's, it's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's, it's th that, that now, in a way, seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Five it, years have gone by. Well, actually, that was six years. It was six years ago, and uh, uh, it... You know, one of the things you, you lose sight of when you're in the trenches building a company is how much you actually are accomplishing. And mm. it's only on those occasions when you get to look back. But for the benefit of the listeners to the podcast, we decided quite early that we had the opportunity to build our archives as we were going. And one of the great artifacts in the archives is the piece of paper yeah. where I sketched out the business plan literally on the back of a beer coaster. And we have that framed and up on the wall here at Coda is one of the, the things about our origins. And those things... I think those things are vitally important because organisations need to have mission and purpose. You know, whether it is a, a charitable group, a non-profit group, or a for-profit group. If you ever lose sight of that mission and purpose and why you are, why you are tells you who you are and who you are tells you the, you, well, you can, you're going to behave. Mm. Those things are critical. And David, you know, we spend a lot of time here thinking about those things, articulating those things. We've got symbols for those things. Mm. Building the culture around you is very important for what we're trying to do. So, Well, we're here to talk about um, investment, really, I suppose, is a central um, topic. Um, you've had a long career. You've just talked us through it. Um, what have you learned about successful investors and what sets successful investors apart from the rest? So many things. Um, investing is so simple and yet so hard um, because to be, to be a good investor... David, you almost have to go against every human emotion and instinct that we're hardwired to do. I think the really good investors have a plan and they stick to it because markets just don't behave in the way we think we're going to. You cannot predict markets. So the best investors I've seen over my career have a remarkable ability to shut out the noise and keep going back to the plan. And the plan is a reflection of what they're good at 
and what they've been honest about that. A plan reflects what their objectives are and they stick with it over time. And again, they sound like really simple principles are actually quite hard to do, but I think that's what sits behind very good investors. And um, you, in your career again, you've, you've, you have had ultimate responsibility for uh, a huge number of portfolios uh, in the private wealth arena. Now at Coda, we, we have portfolios for clients here of about $8, million, $8 billion, I can't even say it, $8 billion. Um, <laughs> So tell us a bit more about um, successful portfolio management and what you've learned um, overseeing that kind of money. I think there are a couple of really important things um, <clears throat> around how you do that. And I'm going to answer the question, David, less around someone who's responsible for setting up an organisation that does this and more around, might be more helpful for your listeners to think about some of the characteristics of building out a good investment portfolio for them. Absolutely, yes. We're very interested in the how. Yeah, so, so I think that there are a couple of um, principles that you can lay down, which if you follow, you can get very good investment outcomes for the long term. And I think here are a couple of things that I'd put on the table as being critical. The first one is you cannot predict markets. Anybody who says they can do that might be able to do that for very short periods of time but it's almost impossible to predict markets over the long term. This podcast is being recorded at the back end of February, mm. where we came off a remarkable January, where equity markets around the world delivered extraordinary results. And even into the middle of February, things were going fine. And we've just had one of the most savage market corrections <laughs> triggered by a, a possible pandemic, mm. which actually we've known about for some time. <clears throat> Who can tell? So you can't predict markets. And so if you have an investment strategy that is predicated on predicting, predicting markets, it's flawed. So if we take that as a given, then the only way that you can truly build wealth over time is to build a portfolio that reflects a high quality, diversified set of risks. Simple thing to say, quite a hard thing to do. High quality, diversified set of risks. Because if you think about investing, investing is a risk transfer for a reward from one party to another. That's what investing actually is. But if you can build a portfolio that is built around a diversified set of risks, that's the best way to do that over time. It's actually quite hard to do, David, because we've all sat in meetings, review meetings with clients, where the first thing that happens is you go to the poor performing assets in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And we try to explain to clients that if you are truly diversified, you're going to have some things that are going to be doing really well, and you're going to be having some things that do really badly. And that's what true diversification looks like. Mm. Human nature is, I don't want any of those bad things. I mm. want everything to be going well at the same time. Well, then you're not diversified. So the discipline to maintain that and quality, um, high quality risk return um, trade-offs is important in doing that. You can do that. Mm. If you do that, you can do that and get great returns. And then the last piece of the puzzle is over time. You have yep. to be prepared. If you are gonna manage and get the outcomes from a diversified portfolio of risks, to have the time horizon to allow that to mature. And I'll give you a good example of how we talk about that to clients. David, if you ask me what the market is gonna to do tomorrow, at best it's a coin toss. It's 50-50 whether it goes up or down. 
And in fact, if you said to me, where do you think the market will be by the end of the year? It's actually not much better than 50-50 up or down. It might be 55 up, 45 down. Mm. But if you stretch that out to 10 years, I can confidently say to you, it's probably 90% probability that it'll be up mm. and a 10% probability will be down. And if you stretch that time horizon out to 30 years, I can tell you it's almost certain that the markets will be up. The ability to really think long-term and trust the long-term is, is, is the secret. Um, you can't pick the market, so just be prepared to invest through the cycle. Build a high-quality, diversified portfolio of mm. risks and stick with it for the long-term. If you can do those three things, inevitably, you will deliver satisfactory investment outcomes over time. Mm. And the trick is to not let the noise and the fear and the greed deviate you away from those things. So I'm gonna pick out of that one word fear and I'm gonna turn that around and talk about courage. So uh, on a previous podcast, we had Stephen Fitzgerald um, who was sharing his experience on um, as a guardian of the future fund, for example. And he talked about the idea that people think and talk about being very long-term, but in a moment of crisis, they act in a very short-term way. Uh, Warren Buffett, meanwhile, we mentioned often at our nonprofit investment masterclasses, talks about the fact that you don't need a stratospheric IQ to be a good investor, but you need a good framework, and then you need the ability to stop emotion corroding that framework. So in the nonprofit context, you're sitting on philanthropic money, you don't want to lose it. Uh, you're sitting in, inside a charity, and you're sitting on money that the government or the public have given you. You're sitting in a non-profit and you're thinking about the members who've given you their hard-earned money. Courage is really important. What role does that play as far as you're concerned? Um, vital, vital. And I'm gonna come back to that. But the first thing I'm gonna do is give a plug to your previous episodes because if someone's listening to this, they should <laughs> listen to the one from Stephen Fitzgerald, it's a beauty, and it's probably gonna give more insight than what I'm gonna give in this. So <laughs> go back and listen to that, listeners, please. However, courage is critical because um, it's, it's very easy to look at, the look at the downside of risks that you can see. Investing money in markets, equity markets, and the volatility, that you, the risk that you might lose money. But the reality is there are also risks you can't see because sitting in cash, you have virtually no hope of maintaining the value of that money over time. In fact, I would argue that um, sitting in cash is a terrible investment decision. But, but moving out into, into risk markets suddenly means you will face volatility. There's a whole bunch of things a committee can do to sensibly manage and mitigate those risks. But they're hard, and at some stage in this podcast we'll probably talk about those things. But recognising that to be a good, to do your role as an investor, you need to take on sensible risks. If you, if you, if you wanna try and avoid risks, then, then you won't do your job. And in fact, you'll be doing harm in that context. The key here is sensibly taking on risks. And it does require courage because the nature of going back to what I talk about, about portfolio constructions, you can't predict markets. You will be wrong. And therefore, you need to have the courage to be able to say, despite that, the right thing to do is to sensibly invest this money and try to grow it over time. Um, the dynamic around trustees, boards, committees, to create that environment where people can be sensibly courageous, I think it's one of the most important tasks 
of a chair or a trustee of money of managing that sort of money and I'm sure that we can talk about that at some stage in the well let's talk let, uh, turn turn into chairs and trustees and the like um, uh, again this podcast uh, really is for the nonprofit community so if you think about people in the nonprofit community who are charged with the responsibility of, of uh, managing an investment portfolio or investing cash for the first time we think about them they usually work in committee Sometimes it's the board, but increasingly it's um, specialist investment committees, if not finance risk audit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience on those kind of committees, uh, and then particularly what you've learned around and the insights you think might might be useful for people that are sitting there doing that work themselves? Very often, the the default position is to focus on the very technical aspects of that, um, the the agenda. So often, David, the, the cycle of these things is that the investment committee meets in time for the papers to go to the finance committee that meets in time for the finance committee papers to go to the board. Mm. And so the, there's, a, there's a very procedural process to a lot of this. Reviewing the investment performance, okay? Um, having an assessment of market conditions. I would call those things technical things that happen in investment committees. What's less focused on, but I would argue is more important, are the things that, that you know, we could sort of talk to our clients about at these masterclasses. I think that there are some really important fundamental questions that trustees of for-purpose money need to make sure that they are creating the time and space in their committee to answer these questions. And I'll give you some examples of them now. The first question I think that's vital for you to answer is, what is the purpose of the money? And, and, and are we lined up with the mission effectively? And I'll give you a really practical example of that. Um, if you are running money that is truly endowment in its style, the capital base is designed to be preserved forever and the income that comes off that uh, corpus is designed to do work in the organisation. You can build an investment portfolio that can have a time horizon of forever. It's an incredible luxury. And if you actually have money which is endowment in its nature and you aren't building a portfolio and taking risks that can be defined forever, mm. I would argue that you're completely letting down the organisation you're doing it for. More so in an organisation where that investment uh, is not technically going to be taxed. Uh, exactly. Right, you've got a fantastic opportunity. Fantastic opportunity, mm. incredible opportunity. The other side of that is that, um, and, and, and you know, one of the organisations that I'm associated with is a medical research uh, charity, um, and we're trying to rid the world of a chronic disease, type 1 diabetes. Uh, they have an investment portfolio, that organisation. It's a substantial investment portfolio. But the purpose of that, really, is that if something were to ever happen that would allow the breakthrough to be imminent, we want to have the money to make that happen, and then we want to have the money to sensibly wind down the organisation, pack up and go home. Hmm. That's not an endowment. The investment returns and the way that money is invested is fundamentally different. Hmm. It has to be liquid, available, preserved. You know this, and we see it all the time, where there's a mismatch between the purpose of the money and the investment portfolio that's sitting around it. Those questions can't be answered in a half-hour committee meeting mm. in between reviewing the performance of the portfolio and assessing the market outcomes. That's a conversation that has to take place over a long period of time to really make sure those principles are lined up. Do we really understand the purpose of the money? 
and is that aligned to our mission? The second fundamental question is, do we have a plan that is aligned with that purpose? Um, if you go back to that Stephen Fitzgerald podcast, he talks a lot about the clarity of the mandate for the future fund yeah. and the way that sets the tone for the investments. Um, the con constitutional documents that form the plan, the charter of the committee, the investment policy statement, these are vitally important because they set the rules. This is the plan. This is how we're going to do these things. And often committees find them tedious and dull and boring. I'll confess to you that I find them tedious and dull and boring, but they're fundamental because what they do is they allow the people around the table to have a clear understanding and alignment of not just what it is we're going to do or what it is we need to do, but how we can do it. Because markets will test you and that all the time. Mm. And being able to come back to those things and creating alignment around them is vitally important. And again, it's just not a conversation that can be done once in half an hour. We're talking about checklists and policy documents and charters. You told me a story around um, the importance of that in the context of the aviation industry. <laughs> just tell me that because it's a really good way to think about this for people who yeah. think, ah, oh, got yeah. a policy, put it away, don't have to worry about mm. it. Uh, if you've ever caught, if you've ever flown in a light plane, one of those six-seater things or eight-seater things where there's nothing that sits between you and the pilot. The great metaphor for me was that the pilot sits on the runway and in many cases it's still a little paper thing that he scrolls through at the top of the cockpit and it's a checklist and he rolls the checklist and checks the rear rudder. He <laughs> rolls the checklist and he checks the flaps are working. He rolls the checklist. Even though this pilot has years and years and years of experience, they have the discipline to work their way through a checklist before they take off. Mm. And to me, that was it's just a great metaphor, isn't it? That no mm. matter what your experience, yeah. the checklist is important. It reminds you that you're following a process. And in doing that process, you are mitigating the risks. Mm. And that's ultimately the way I think committees should uh, think about this. So what's your checklist like? Have you really stress tested your checklist? And do you follow it in a disciplined way? I think that's really important. Mm. Okay, yeah. so other, 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 other things, things um, for committees to think about. What sort of a committee are you going to be? Are you going to be a committee that manages the money? Or are you going to be a committee that manages an outsourced service provider? Uh, <clears throat> fundamentally different. Because if you're going to be a committee that manages the money, first of all, you need to have the skills and capability on the committee. But secondly, you need to have those skills and on the available when required. Mm. Because as best as I can lock down over my experience, the market has never collapsed 24 hours before the committee meeting. <laughs> okay. you know? So if you think that you're going to be able to make investment decisions once a quarter, you're, you're delusional. I go back to good investors have, are honest about what they can and can't be. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too is that if you're going to be a committee that is going to hold an external provider to account, it's sort of a different skill set that you might need on that committee. Yeah. I've spoken about this before. It might be someone who has skills in procurement that is good at reviewing contracts and holding service providers to account. Mm -hmm. might be a really interesting set of skills that you need on the committee. Mm -hmm. Understanding what sort of a committee you're going to be is vital because we will often see committees that want to be sleeves up hands in running the money, but they are only available to me once a quarter. The other thing when we talk about having the right skills, 
for me, which we see time and time again, is you may have a skill in finance, you may have been a successful business person, you may even had a career in the investment markets or part of them, but the skill to manage a non-profit, say endowment fund, is a really different skill again, isn't it? Completely. You, you know, and that I, I think that's often overlooked. Committees think we've got the skills because we've got someone who's worked for a well-known finance institute. That's far from what, what you need, isn't it? The fact that you have a long and well-established track record in investment markets doesn't necessarily make you a good committee member. Mm. Because a good committee member has to be prepared to listen. A good committee member has to be prepared to um, sort of work to getting consensus in a committee. Finance professionals aren't necessarily known for not necessarily you know, holding back their view. Mm. And so there's, you know, there's, it, if you go back to the things that I just spoke about, what sort of a committee are you going to be? The importance of constituent documents and having someone on the committee who really likes that work. That's where the composition of an investment committee and the role that the chair has in not just being thoughtful about making sure we're answering those questions, but being thoughtful about making sure I have the right skills around the table to be the committee we want to be. I think those things are vitally important. There's a tendency to draw towards the finance professionals or the investment mm, professionals. Mm. And there's a, there's a good reason for that and there is a role for that. But I would argue that getting the right mix of people around the committee table, building trust, creating the time and the space to have the critical conversations, I think that's really important. There's one other thing that I would raise for the committees. Who are our stakeholders and do they know what we are doing? It's a vital question. Mm. Because I would say it's, a, it's critical that the committee understands who they serve and that they're communicating effectively with those groups. Who do you serve? There's the board. Most often investment committees report through to a board. There's the executive. The executive are the ones who ultimately are the beneficiaries of the funds that are coming out of the investment process. Um, donors and funders, you want to know if you have a wonderful strategic asset in an endowment that you're not signalling to your funders that you actually don't need their support mm. because you're well, you're well funded, quite the, quite the contrary mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, the community, the consumer, there was a wonderful example of this uh, during the fires where a charity was very badly criticised by the government because they held back some of the funding to fit in with a longer term plan. Yeah. Now, um, what I would say is I don't know whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision, but when it happened, I thought, wow, that's a stakeholder management issue. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's a very important thing because if you are trustee of for-purpose money, inevitably there are going to be times when your investment returns might be negative. They might not be what you would want them to. It's inevitable. Mm. And if at the point in time that's when you begin the process of communicating with your stakeholders, you're in a crisis. I want to ask you, because again we're talking about how here, I want to get an insight into how you prepare for investment committee meetings. So what, what do you do? You, when do you begin that process and how do you prepare so that you um, can acquit yourself well and add a bit of value to the organisation? 
you and I worked with a, with an experienced professional years ago who said the first placement of any person coming into the organisation at a board level was in the medical malpractice committee, <laughs> right? Because it's there that you realise what happens when things go wrong. Mm. And it's only then do you get to go and work on the finance committee right. once you've done your time. You've got to sit and listen. You've got to listen and understand what's going on and what the organisation needs and how you can fit into that. You've got to build relationships with the people that you're going to work with on the committee, in the executive. Creating that trust is critical. Um, and those things, again, will take time. But if you don't have those things in place, then you won't be the contributor in the meeting that you could otherwise be. And then, and then when I... Um, when I think about preparation for the committee, I think there are some things that are, that are vitally important. You've got to be across the documents. You've got to read the papers, right? You, and that's sometimes hard because we all, we're all doing this on a volunteer basis and it's not always easy to do that, but I think it's vitally important that, that you're across what's being put in, put in front of you. I try to think about what are the nub of the issues that need to be talked about at that meeting. And I, and I try to create some space to think about those issues. Again, this is this idea, David, of pulling back from the agenda in its technical nature and trying to get to the nub of the issues that you yep. want to be able to put on the, the table. Essence, the essence of it rather than what's the technical the, What's the essence agenda? of the meeting and yep. what we're trying to do here? And if you understand that, and you've got good relationships with the people who are going to be around you, and they understand that essence of the issue, you'll have a wonderful meeting really great mm. when those things happen. So whenever I approach, from my perspective at least, I try to think about it that way. It's have I, have I set this thing up by having the relationships around me with people, understanding their strengths and weaknesses. In fact, strengths and weaknesses is the wrong word. I want to take that back though. Understanding the role they play on the committee. Yeah. Understanding the role I play on the committee. Building trust so that we can have the conversations that need to be had about the essence of what we're trying to solve and work towards for the organisation. Those things are pretty important and making sure that you've, you've got your head around those things before you walk through the door of the meeting, I think that's pretty important. Yeah, brilliant, thanks. Well, a couple of final questions. Um, a final one on the, on the investment front. Um, we, and I, and I mean you and I, we have seen, uh, working together at JB Weir and then for the last five or so years here at CODA, we've seen ethical ESG uh, considerations and questions around the impact of the capital as you allocate it go from, um, in a general sense, being a fringe issue or a hygiene issue for most investors, uh, and I would include most investors in the non-profit space, to being um, really mainstream, right? And uh, I wanted to just ask you, not so much about the ethical and ESG, but feel free to touch on that. But I wanted to ask you about the pointy end of that, which is the impact investment world where you can, rather than just avoid harm, you can do something positive um, deliberately as well as earning um, um, market returns in a financial sense. Just, I'm just interested how you, you think investors should think about impact investing. Sure. Um, David, you know I've been on the record on this. I've said it publicly, to me, this is the most obvious trend developing in the investment world that I've seen in my time. Um, Richard Brandweiner 
from Pendle describes it thus, and I think he's got it exactly right. If you go back into the, you know, 100 years ago, there was one dimension thought about it, it was risk. Oh, sorry, it was return. Everyone just talked about return. Mm. And then in the, in the 70s, there was a new concept was put in place, which is you, there's another dimension here, and it's risk. It's returns you get relative to the risk that you take, and that's now accepted theory. And I think we're at the beginning of an emerging third dimension, which is its returns, risk, and impact. Mm. What's, the, what's, what are you, what's the impact you're having in the way you deploy that capital? And I think that as people begin to realize that it's not just that you can get the same return for the same risk and do good, but in actual fact, you'll get a better return if you're prepared to think about those long-term social benefits that come from deploying your capital. I think there is an inevitability that this is going to become mainstream in its thinking. Mm. If you you can apply some um, uh, some social uh, some social changes of the intergenerational wealth transfer and the new generation much more alive to these things than people like you and I are putting us in the old category, mm-hmm. David. And I think there's this inevitability to how this is going to come about. As with anything that becomes new, um, people are going to look for proof that this is happening. And I think there's a body of evidence now that is pointing to the fact that you can deploy capital and not just remove things that do harm, but very intentionally do good. Mm. And that in doing so, you will achieve a better risk return trade-off than standard investments. I think the body of evidence is there. The pool of accessible opportunities is only now really starting to grow. And it's when you have the body of evidence and the full suite of opportunities to build diversified portfolios combined with this awareness that this is the right way to move, that's when momentum really comes into what we're there. And we're not there yet. But when I look at the forces that are shaping the world today, and I think about the motives, we all have to hope that we leave the world in a better place than when we found it. To me, it all comes back to impact investing. And um, and again, I'm gonna commend Stephen Fitzgerald podcast that you did because mm. you know he, he points out that says, well, if I can get the returns and if I can do good, it's not a question of why, it's a question of why wouldn't I? Yeah. And so I feel this is inevitability. You know, I'm really proud of the work that you and your team are doing to build out this capability at a time when not all the pieces of the puzzle are there. Okay. But you know, I you know that we're all very, very pleased and proud of the fact that we think that there's this inevitable trend and we're, we're, we're excited to be at the front end of that. It's not easy at the front end of it mm. at the moment. As I said, the pieces of the puzzle aren't all there, but they're emerging. Mm. And uh, I, think it's a, I think it's going to be a vital service. In fact, it's going, to be, it's going to be core fundamental thinking about how you invest money yeah. 20 years from now when <clears throat> you and I are lying on a beach somewhere. Um, this will be the way it's, it's always been done. Yeah. In, the, in the same way now we think about risk and return in combination. And so, um, you know, if, if the listeners aren't thinking and understanding and aware of this emerging trend, I'd encourage them to, um, to explore it. There's a lot of material there. And, uh, and, you know, David, you're producing, you and your team are producing a lot of material on, on this, new, this new frontier, which is very exciting. You can approach this from a, 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 what I'd call a bleeding heart angle. 
it's good to do good things, true. But in doing good things, you're actually producing hard-nosed commercial reality mm. that is gonna make that investment opportunity more attractive for capital um, in a world that's rapidly changing. And so that's the logic yeah. that, you know, that was the theory that if you invested with impact, you would deliver superior returns. Mm -hmm. As I said, I think there's now a substantial body of evidence that that's true. Yeah, well we're talking about impact investment there, right? Um, I reckon safe to say for both of us, look forward to the day where it's just called investment. Yeah, right. yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so final question, Paul. We are sat in a CODA office and there is an elephant on the table. You mentioned right at the start of the podcast about symbols at CODA. Uh, this is one of the most important and best known. Tell us about the elephants. We love the elephants. Um, so, so when we set up Coda, we, we in a genuine we, this is a partnership, and we, we really feel I want everyone to feel and act like owners of the firm. We got the then group of partners together and we defined our culture and what we wanted to do, and we set a set of values. Three simple values: quality, courage, and integrity. And there are some behaviours attached to each of those values. And for each of those, we have a symbol. And so courage, one of the things we want to be able to do is have the courage to say it the way it is and be open to feedback. That's the context of all of this. And our symbol for that is an elephant. Uh, in every room at Coda, there is an elephant. Um, and we say, that's the only elephant that's allowed in this room. Everything else we're going to talk about. And it's taken off, hasn't it? Yeah. Clients bring us elephants. <laughs> Staff bring back elephants from overseas. We, in fact, have more elephants now than we have rooms to put them in. We, the, the fortunate thing is you say that's the only elephant that's allowed in the room, but we've got about seven elephants <laughs> per room now because of the holidays and the client gets. But, but yeah, it, it's, it's a great it's story, fantastic. Well, you it's know, the elephant that anyway. sits there, and you're right, David, There's for your listeners, there's a, a lovely green ivory elephant <laughs> sitting here on the desk. It makes your culture real. And one of the things we were very determined to do in building the company is we didn't want to just stick words up on a wall and say, there's our culture. We've got to make it real. And examples like the elephant, we have other symbols and rituals that we pay a lot of attention to because that means our culture is, is real. And if our culture is real and our culture is lined up with the services and the intent we have for our clients, we'll build a great organisation. That's the plan and, you know, I, I feel we're well on our way. Good. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Paul. And... Um Appreciate you giving us giving us your insights into your, both your your, uh, your experience in portfolio management and wealth, and also your time working with the, the nonprofit investment committees. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.